stay with the coach. Man. Radio, your gamers roll. www.d20radio.com. Thought for the day. The most deviant mind is often concealed in an unblemished body. Hello, witches, and welcome to episode 102 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast about role-playing in the 41st millennium using the Wrath and Glory system created by Ulysses North America. Well, technically, 42nd millennium. It is it, actually quite true. It is now the 42nd millennium. Thank, thank you for correcting me on that one, Mike. I'm sure I'll get it wrong next time because I'm so used to that spiel. Yes. <laughs> you're right, it is. Uh, so, yes, uh, we talk about these game systems. Uh, we cover a bit each show. We talk a bit about... Uh, the rules, the, the setting. Uh, before we get into today's show, though, we normally talk about what we've done as far as gaming goes in the past month since we last recorded. Yep. Uh, so it's been a pretty busy month. We've had the, the holiday break in Australia. So obviously with, with Christmas being over summer in Australia, that's when all the schools shut down. And so I'll apologize in advance that my children are in the next room watching television. So if they suddenly come running in screaming daddy or something, you might hear it. I'll do my best to filter out any uh, childhood interference, but they're home from school, obviously. Um, yeah, no, we had a good chance to do some gaming, play some Battletech, yeah, uh, or the MechWarrior or Time of War campaign. Well, I thought went not too bad. That was one another. We sort of had a non-combat session again where we got to focus on just. Well, what would you call? So there's no combat. In that, I'm talking about no mech combat. The session, yeah, where yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. got betrayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was actually a good session. Yeah, yeah, so that's it. Yeah. So you know, we, we I, I sort of, and then we had another session straight after it, which was all combat. Yeah, or a little bit at the end of. Uh, <laughs> Actually, it was, no, all, no, it was combat. all combat. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, so it's the nature of the game, unfortunately. But yeah, everyone I think yeah. had a good time. Uh, we played some Blackstone Fortress uh, in in the break as well. So uh, if you're familiar with Blackstone Fortress, or we talked about it on the show last time, you need to get through four strongholds, and you can go after the uh, uh, the vault. So we've beaten two of the four strongholds so far. So yeah. a little bit under halfway through the game, I'd say. Well, I'd say right on halfway because you've got the the few expeditions first before you can launch your first. Stronghold assault. So, yeah, we're halfway through the game now, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, we played some 40k. Yep. So, we had a three way game of 1500 points of your Empress children and 1500 points of Steve's Thousand Sons versus 3000 points of my Guard and Ultramarines. Your first outing in a while with, with Empress children, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First time I've used Empress children properly. Happened um, how they turned out? Well, actually, sorry, no, it's the second time I've used Emperor's Children, but it's the first time I've used Emperor's Children completely alone. Without, oh, without, without, any, without any demons, yeah. Without any demons, and yeah, they went they went very well. Two for two now with the Emperor's Children. So, okay, so you, I think you played that. When, when we, planet, the Planet Strike. Oh, that's true, yeah, okay, yeah. We'll yeah, be the, the other three. I mean, the, the demons did well. most of the damage in that one because I had more demons than Emperor's Children in that particular game. Yeah. And in this one, it was all just Emperor's Children. But you put together your Forge World Noise Marines now, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they look nice. Yeah. So you just got to get on the pain now, Mike. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm putting the rest of the group to shame when it comes to painting these. Well, it's just <laughs> sheer quantity that you put out compared to us, yeah. <laughs> and I have, I have more children than anyone else in the group. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, but most importantly, uh, we actually managed to, in the last month, have both a session zero and a first session of Wrath and Glory. Yeah. Uh, that Mike is running. Yes. Um, doing your own setting. So not, not the Gilead system, but your own... I've, so, I've neighboured it to the Gilead system. Okay, so you can use the same materials, but you can also... Uh, I can. It, it, when, when the Gilead system books come out and I, and I get to have a look through them, I can shift the campaign into the Gilead system easily enough. Okay, no worries. Hopefully. And, and, and so, with one session, how do you how, how do you find the first session, Mike? I think it went quite well. Yep. Yeah. So what have we got in the group? We've got a Inquisitorial Acolyte. Yep. We've got a... Death Cult Assassin. Death Cult Assassin. We've got a Sister of Battle. Uh, we've got a... Rogue Trader. Rogue Trader. And we've got a sort of a... Magus uh, Biologist. Magus Biologist. Yeah, so yeah. we basically you took the Tech Priest, which is a Tier 3, and, and dumbed it down a bit to be a, a Tier 2 option. So uh, Essentially, I just built it with Tier 2 experience, which means that he's quite underpowered skills and stats-wise compared to everyone else. a high build point cost for the archetype. For the archetype. Yeah. Um, but he does have better gear than other people, I would say. Yeah, it's probably he, he starts with two cybernetics, which is quite powerful. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, if you read the section in cybernetics on the book, it basically says that you can't just go and acquire these because they can be quite game-changing because they adjust stats. You know, normally you have to get them through the augmenting talent, basically, in order to justify yeah. the impact they have on your character. Yeah. So it does sort of filter out people just trying to go for, let's all just get the thing which gives us plus one strength and we'll all be stronger. You know, you have to actually, have to actually pay for that. Yes. So no, it's good to actually um, have a have a proper spin of Wrath and Glory now that the, the books for it are out, and we use the cards, we use the uh, the tokens, you know, the Wrath and Ruin, sorry, Glory and Ruin tokens as well. So um, yeah, that was a a good first session. I think everyone in the group's looking forward to to future sessions. Yeah, and of course we'll talk more about them on this show. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about today's show. We'll do our regular news section. Pretty quiet at the moment. Although I'm gonna I'm not rant, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of pulled together several conversations I've heard recently that I want to sort of bring to the table and discuss with you, Mike. Yeah. Um, then we've got the sort of all-psychic episode. So we're doing uh, the psychic system first. Uh, then we're going to talk about the sanctioned psyker as an archetype. Uh, we're going to review uh, Dark Tides. So Dark Tides is the five adventure book which came out along with the starter set and or when the first book came out. It's now available both in PDF format and if you got the all-in bundle you would have a copy of that as well. Um, so no, it'll be a spoiler-free review. We're not going to sort of give anything away, but I just want to talk about sort of the different parts of the game. And, and also, I've sort of, I've seen people through Facebook groups talking about ways to run the game. And I think it's worth having the chat about the different sort of ways to run it because it's not as straightforward as a regular multi-adventure published module might be. Yeah. Uh, then the last one I talk about is just, uh, and I, this really came out of our Wrath and Glory game from the other day, uh, a quick conversation about character descriptions, particularly how we describe our characters to other players as well, because, um, you know, really we're talking about the theatre of, the of the mind here, and, you know, we want other people to sort of visualise our characters the same way that we do, so how can you sort of lead to that in, in gaming as well? Uh, and then finally, we'll do our regular community section and finish off the show, so... Sounds good. Let's get into it, shall we? Command acknowledged. Accessing Imperial Archives. Well, we can get through the Ulysses of North America pretty quickly because they're, since our last show, we really haven't had any sort of news from Ulysses of North America. They've been getting some new Kickstarters uh, to the forefront along with their uh, the talk and otherwise as well. That's been their sort of their more their marketing focus recently. I did get an email uh, 
basically a few days after I got my uh, all-in bundle uh, in the mail, basically saying that as far as they could tell now, most all-in bundles should have been delivered to customers uh, and to, you know, if, if people hadn't got their bundles by a certain date, to yeah, contact them cool. and also to contact them if things were missing. Because, for example, so I, I got an all-in bundle and a player's bundle, and I think it was in my player's bundle the dice packet was missing the rat dice. You know, but not a big deal. I'll, I'll probably just still send an email to sort of say, like, don't need to send me a dice from from North America. It seems like a waste of time. But, you know, for your own quality assurance purposes, you might want to know about this so you can then follow up with the vendor as such and make sure you didn't get, you didn't get charged for that one dice. Uh, okay, but that's really it from, from Ulysses North America this time. Uh, Cubicle 7, once again, not a lot of news on the roleplay front. They have now released the starter set for Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, which includes things like example characters, I mean, includes an adventure as well. Available as PDF on Drive for RPG. I think you can also get it physically soon in stores as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, still no word yet on the final launch of the main, the main product. So, I've seen quite a few games do this whole starter set thing now as well, like with the new Battletech. Apparently the starter set will be out in February and the main set sometime later on. So, I mean, what do you think of that as a style of doing this sort of, uh, the smaller launch first? Um, I think it's okay. It gives people who backed it from the beginning a, a nice little reason to back it from the beginning, I suppose. Yeah. Like, like a little leg up. I mean, with, with Wrath of Glory, in the starter set, you really got um, a whole bunch of stuff in there. You know, you've got tokens, you've got adventure. I mean, like, I think about, for example, like, Fantasy Flight Games with their Star Wars starter sets. Is that, you know, I still got of those. And I guess once you've run the adventure, the, and, and the main, and the core book has come out, the starter set is sort of redundant. You know, there's not a lot of reason to turn back to it anymore. I mean, I'm sure different groups can run the adventure differently as well, but, um, yeah, that's probably my only main thing is, like, with looking at the battle set one, I want the full box, not the starter set. And as far as I can tell, the starter set just contains... There, there's no, there's nothing in the starter set which isn't in the main box. That's right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with, with Wrath and Glory, with the FFG games, like with Star Wars and Elphavar, at least you actually got, like, adventures and pre-gen characters and that sort of stuff. And same with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Yeah, it's also good for people who aren't sure if they're going to like the new game. Like, they've never played Battletech before. Get the starter set, see if you actually like it and if your group's actually willing to play it. Yeah. As I'm, I'm sure you're aware, there's a person in our, in our gaming group who's renowned for saying that that's crap and not yes. wanting to play a game again. <laughs> After one use. After one use. So uh, starter sets might be good for someone like that. Yeah. If you've got people like that in your group. That's also a person who doesn't basically spend any money on gaming. You know, yeah. Pretty own miniatures and stuff. You know, so. yeah. Anyway, um, so on the Games Workshop now, I guess this is where I wanted to spend the bulk of the new section today because. Uh, you know, Rooted New Year. Happy New Year, by the way. If you listen to the show live, or not live, but as it comes out. Um, and, uh, so we've seen Chapter Approved 2018 came out. Yep. Uh, now, if you think back to our last show, we talked about the fact that they were going, you know, hey, Grey Knights players, we're really happy now with Chapter, chapter Approved 2018. I'm a Grey Knights player. I'm not happy with Chapter Approved 2018. Um, realistically speaking. Everyone got points reduction. Yeah, that's it. You know, when everybody gets a point reduction, nobody gets a point reduction. Hey, cultists didn't get a point reduction. That's right, they got put up too, that's right. But then again, and hey, there's already the whole argument between cultists and guard now about, now that guard are cheaper than cultists. How they actually work, given that guards get orders, and everything everything that cultists do well, they do with strategies, so it costs CP as well. And and I guess this is sort of getting into the conversation because I've been watching a few other 40k things where people discuss it, so we're talking about videos on YouTube or, or looking on blogs and forums and on and Facebook too. And I've seen a few conversations come up a few times and 
These aren't necessarily, well, they're not really related to the RPG, but I thought they're still discussing because if you like the RPGs, you might follow the 40k line as well. Um, so I'm going to start off with the fact that uh, the first White Dwarf of this year, so the January edition, um, is a new format. Yep. So they've gone for this breakdown. Where you've uh, you're going to go on about the, the, the battle with I'll, get to, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. But yeah, so, so they changed the format. You know, So now it's like all the 40k stuff is in one place, all the... Agency when I started in one place. So it's not like you go, you've got your articles at the front and your painting tips at the back. You know, the articles and painting tips are in one section for, you know, Age of Sigma and another section for, for 40k. Uh, and this issue had a 40k battle report. And they even, they acknowledged it in the magazine itself. They said, okay, normally when we do battle reports in White War, we try to do something narrative. You know, we, we pick a studio army, we pick a second one, we work out a narrative battle, we set it up and we have fun telling a story. But they wanted to showcase some of the new tactical options available through um, uh, Chapter Crew 2018. So instead what they did is they got a couple of old-school tournament players, you know, people who had multiple first places in you know, national tournaments uh, in the last year, and they got them to come in, choose a studio army, and do a game you know, focusing on the strategy and the rules and that sort of thing. Now, first off, one of the guys chose an army which was basically... A loyal 32, so basically three, three squads of guard troop plus two, um, HQ. HQs to get the plus five CP for being a, a battalion. Uh, then they chose a supreme command detachment of blood angels with two slammed captains and a piston with the wings of sanguineous, um, psychic powers we can fly as well. And then the rest of their points were knights. Uh, now this is a, a classic tournament. tournament list which has been going on at the moment, you know, imperial soup list. Uh, and then his opponent took an army which was a mix of um, Inari, so also it was an Inari this, so basically a mix of Crapwood or uh, including like a lot of flies, so Hemlock Wraith Fighters. Of course, because um, they're the best. Yeah, uh, Dark Reapers. Um, and of then, course, because they're the best, yeah, because they're foot troops. That's yeah. right, and then then um, Dark Eldar Flyers and Bikes, uh, and then Harlequin basically a, a Shadow Seer to get the psychic power to be able to move another unit. Or move a second part of the unit, you know. So, um, two very soupy lists. I mean, yes, Anari is designed to be this sort of mixed list, but it was really, it, it wasn't going for Anari fluff, it was going for picking and choosing what are the best of each Eldar or Eldari list to combine together and, and make a one list. And I won't spoil the outcome for you, um, but certainly, I mean, like, I still enjoy reading it, but, uh, another, another channel I watched on YouTube, basically, someone there said, you know, by, Games Workshop endorsing this effect by putting their stamp on it, by putting this sort of battle report into White Dwarf. They're saying it's okay. They're saying it's okay. And is the, is this the death knell of the mono-faction army? You know, um... People have said that before. When the Allies Matrix came out for, you know, 7th edition, 6th yeah, edition, or yeah. one of them, um, but they complained about it then. It, it, allies have always been a thing. I mean, I remember in 2nd edition, you'd take 25% of your army as allies. Back when they didn't even tell you what could be allies with yeah, exactly, what. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is the the question now: is that can you, if you want to be a, a competitive player, do you have to do soup to be competitive, or can you be competitive with a modern army? Depends competitive? on your army. Yeah. I, I mean, if, I'm not a fan of, in particular, I'm not a fan of people who take multiple detachments of Tyranids all from different high fleets yeah. working together. It just feels completely anti-fluff to me. Yeah, that's right. It's like pe- people that take, you know, I've got a whole whole list of uh, blind angels here led by Gulen. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, that that is current in the in the meta. Well, so that's like the cool is not current in the meta, you know. But what, what's happening now with these supers is what we're seeing in things like the LVO um, and all the other major tournaments right now is that there are these big lists. And you know, knights have been dethroned recently, sent chapter approved. Apparently, they've sort of fallen back down to become a not not a second tier list, but like just not the top of the top tier, basically. Yeah, they're not, not a sort of walkover victory. But uh, you know, it's interesting that they've. Um, They've gone down this path, and I think that the, a lot of people are looking at what they did in White Dwarf and saying this is evidence that GW endorses this, basically. I mean, the other thing I want to bring up is, and you, of course, I, 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 okay. I think particularly that it's not really that they endorse this behaviour or anything, it's that they accept that this behaviour exists, and there are people who play the game solely for tournaments, and yeah. people who are interested in tournament play. Well, see... Personally, means, I wouldn't have done it for the first issue with the new... New format. New format. I would have saved it maybe for a later edition. Yeah. That's, you know. But, see, what you've done is you've, you've gone very nicely to a point I want to discuss, which we talked about earlier and you had the right answer for, which is people are complaining now that um, individual models are being punished in points costs because of how they're used in super tournament lists, not because of how they actually compare with other models in their own faction. So the best example they gave was Shining Spears. You know, in, in Eldar lists, Shining Spears are very popular. You can do some powerful things with them when you mix your different Eldar groups up. And they've been seeing their points cost go up and up and up. Not necessarily in relation to how powerful they actually are, just if you look at the Craft World Eldar forces, you know, taking them as part of a, yeah. a mixed attachment. If you don't have a Shadow Seer with the ability to let them move twice, they're not as powerful and they're not as good. Yeah. And they're not worth the points that you pay for them. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you have the answer to this, basically, which is... Which is, you have two point systems, one for tournament play and one for casual and other play, which would be called power level. Yeah, and it's funny, because I mean, we've been playing now since 8th edition came out, so yeah. we've been playing for a long time, we've, we've come back into playing regularly since 8th came out, and all of our games so far have been based well, on points, not power level, because... But really, you should just go to power level. I think it's it's a familiarity factor. Well, yeah, we've, we've, always, played we've always played with points. I mean, we always used to make lists with points. Yeah. You had to worry about every bolt gun and bolt pistol and, and all that sort of stuff, and now you're done. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe we should try some more games of power levels and see how it goes. I mean, I, I, the, the gamer in me looks at ways to exploit the power level system, but I mean... I, I, but I'm if both thinking... sides are exploiting it the same way, is it really being exploited? Yeah, and I think, I think this is the thing. I think you'll find that it's more likely to overcost an under-optimized unit than it is to under-cost an over-optimized unit. Yeah. So if I was, I could take a squad of five Devastators with just bolt guns, and they're basically a tactical squad, but they cost more power level than a tactical squad costs. Because I can put on this, I can put the same squad on the table with four LAS cannons for the same power level cost. Yeah. So which would do great against a list, an enemy list which is loads of tanks, yeah, but against right. a gaunt, heavy, tyrannid list with no big monsters, it's really not going to do it. I mean, I want to put, put the same Devastator squad there with a plasma cannon, a heavy bolter, a missile launcher, and a blast cannon for the same cost as putting five guys there with just bolts. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the, that's the idea. I think, I think that they've already optimised the, the power level somewhat in there, working out what the power level should be. Yeah. And we don't really see, you know, through chapter approved and FAQs, there have not been a lot of power level changes. No, not at all. Yeah. I think power level is actually a lot more balanced than the individual points cost. Because, as you said, they, they, they're always upping and downing individual points levels a little bit here and there because of these tournament lists. You yeah. know, Cultists are not better than guardsmen. 
Um, and it used to be my biggest issue with second edition with the Elder. It used to absolutely annoy the hell out of me was the fact that they're a dying race and Elder Guardians cost less points than Imperial Guardians yeah. in second edition. And it was like, they're supposed to be untold trillions of humans, yet they somehow cost more points than a guard, you know, than Elder Guard. Guardians, guardian. yeah. And it never made any sense to me from a fluff point of view. It wasn't designed from a fluff point of view. That's right. Okay, so let's look at the other, the other controversy that's uh, sort of got more minor controversy that's got around GW at the moment, and that is Harkin World Painter. Yes. So, uh, I mean, you, you, you found us like, so why don't you relate the, what, what happened there? Okay, so Harkin World Claimer is, is the, is the only Chaos character in the Vigilist campaign book. Yeah, they basically, they, they, so they brought out, yeah, um, uh, the new version of Marius Kalgar for the Ultramarines, and Harkin World Claimer for the, uh, Warfare, not Warfare, it's, um, Black Legion. Uh, Black Legion, sorry. Yeah. So they said, you know, look at this guy, and when they were announcing what was coming in the thing, they, they did blurb on the community thing, and they said, Look at him, here are his abilities, and wow, he's got this special ability which gives raptors a special bonus, and not just Black Legion raptors, any raptors. It makes him fantastic. If your army's got loads of raptors, get this guy. Then they released the FAQ for it, uh, I think two days ago, day yeah. ago. Uh, yeah. And essentially it says that he no longer buffs all raptors, he now only buffs Black Legion raptors. Which of course led some people to be a bit annoyed. And, yeah, and I, I don't play Black Legion. I, I don't try to use with my whatever. So yeah, mostly it was Night Lords players who are going. Well, I took him as a as a little allied squad detachment um, just to get that bonus from my vast amount of Raptors. Uh, why have you nerfed this when you specifically said he helps all Raptors? And the response from GW's community guy, who I feel a bit sorry for. Um, was essentially, well, of course he only affects Black Legion. Why would you think anything else? <laughs> um, you know, all other Black characters Legion. only affect their own Legion. Why would this guy be any different? And obviously that goes completely against the, the community page and the, the blurb they wrote for him and the way they described him. And the question is, well, how can we trust you in the future that, you know, things that you're advertising and telling us to go out and buy because it'll help our armies isn't going to get nerfed straight away yeah. into something that technically... Less, less than a month later. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm i not even going to use that. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about in the past. I mean, <laughs> Ma- Magic the Gathering. Yeah. You know, literally, they'll bring out new new series and they'll have card bam tournament play within weeks of the of that coming out because people just find all the ways to break new tournaments. Yeah. And, you know, it hasn't affected me. And to be honest... I doubt it's affected many players. I very much doubt there are loads of players out there who went out and got this guy just for this thing. But there's a vocal minority, and I'm sure there's also a vocal group of people who don't really care either way, but just like, you know, stirring. Stirring stirring the pot, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, let's get away from the the that sort of thing. I, I will say the other thing we've seen from GW in recent times is a lot of new stuff in period. Uh, the Chiefs of the Cult, sorry. Yep. Including what looks like a surfeit of characters. Yes. A lot of new character models. A lot, a lot of new HQ choices because they were very lacking in HQ choices. Yeah. Plus you've got the bikes now and everything, or trikes, I think, so. Yeah, yeah, they've got, you've got some bikes, they've got some trikes, they've got assassins, they've got all sorts of things. Fantastic. So you, you have dabbled with Gene Steeler Cults in the past or only Gene Steeler Cults was my original army in Rogue Trader. Okay. Have you got so one of the, first have you got one of the limos? No, because you, you had to custom make them yourself. Oh, when okay, I, was, okay. I was a kid. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. No way I would have been able to make a limo back then. Yeah. And then 
So they were part of second edition in the little paper book that you got with the box set, but no codex for them ever came out. So, yeah. Yeah, they they had like a white dwarf thing on point, didn't they? I I think so. I I think think there was like a a, a little section in the back of the Tyranid Codex, maybe, or something like that. But then in third edition, they were gone completely, and that was that. I've also heard just recently, I, I haven't really seen exactly what has changed here, but I've heard some people saying talk about the fact that the most recent FAQ that came out has nerfed Sisters of Battle, you know, which were not, after chapter approved, were not a top-tier army. They were barely even mid-tier, and now they've been nerfed. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, I, I, don't, I don't know the full details there, so I can't speak much more of that, but I, I think that uh, no matter how bad they were to play, there'd be a lot of people who buy them and they bring out new classic models. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I saw a post on Twitter where someone said they'd rather have Awful rules and great models, and the other way around. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. Because I mean, they can always change the rules later on. Exactly. It's right. much harder to get them to scrap a bunch of new casts that they've just done to replace them. Yeah. Than to change the rules. Yeah. Um, other releases. I think they announced uh, the first of the Blackstone Fortress expansion. Oh yes, yeah, so which is the Amble. Yeah, the new, the new monster in it. They're, yeah. they're gonna, so they've got like a, a, a tech version for Blackstone Fortress. But they've got like a regular version. No, no, no. It's a regular version for Blackstone Fortress and it's M bots yeah. for Necromunda. Ah, okay. Right. So robotic versions of Necromunda and a, a real ramble for Blackstone Fortress, which was one of the monsters in the original Rogue Trader. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're that, we're that much closer to Zoas. Yes. <laughs> really, an amble is just a, well, it's, just it's, a stockier hook horror from it's, D&D. It's, it's Let, an, let's be honest. Umber Hulk. Yeah. It's like an Umber Hulk. Yeah. Umber Hulk, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they confuse with their eyes still. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so that's enough on the GW side. Uh, what I will say is that on the computer gaming side, it's been pretty quiet uh, this month. They haven't announced a new Blood Bowl game, which is so. Remember how Blood Bowl Two came out a couple of years ago? Now they've announced a new Blood Bowl game, which is not a turn-based representation of the regular tabletop rules. It's a live sort of point-and-click. Football simulator. So it's more like a FIFA game with. Oh, like a, like a Madden almost, you know. Oh. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort That'd of. be interesting. Yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, all, all I've seen is there's a brief video on Steam. But I think it's called uh, uh, Blood Bowl Death Zone. Yeah. So, uh, there's no release yet. It's going to be an early access soon, apparently. Um, and. Um, I'm Artist 24th of January. Battlefleet Gothic 2. Yeah, I'm Artist 2, that's it, yeah. 24th of January. Yeah, I think they had a special on at the moment, which was um, 25% off or something. Okay, and they showed the Tyranid ships recently as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I will say that Combat Cards, which I was playing, which is only available in a couple of countries, I think now has had a, a wider release. But they also went and pushed a new update and completely changed interface. And oh my god, it slowed the whole game down so much and so many more bugs and. You read all the reviews on on the Apple Store or Google Store. It's like the game was great. Now it's awful. And look, I'm still playing the game, still enjoying it. But I will say, I have not put any money into the game since the new update came out. Because to be honest, the only real advantage it's one of those games where you can't really pay to win. You just pay to save time. And the game is so slow anyway that any any perception of, time, of saving would be lost anyway. So yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> but anyway, I, I digress. Yeah, that's the news, so let's get into our system discussion. Okay. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. So for today's system discussion, I want to talk about the psychic system. Yeah. It's handy that we managed to get a quick psychic power right before the end of your game last week, just so we could give it a give it a good try. 
But, and um, you were very lucky using it as well. Yes, it could have right. been very much, much worse <laughs> yeah. in a couple of ways. I only thought about that sort of afterwards that it was a bit of a bad thing, but we'll come back to that. So it's important to understand first of, that, that there really are a couple of requirements to being psychic in the system that do not include taking the sanctioned psyker archetype or the heret or the um the what's the one called the, the chaos one. Um, that is that your character mainly has to have the psychic keyword. So there are plenty of ways to basically take a normal archetype um, and then when they suddenly get any as a keyword, or for example, some archetypes like the Acolyte start with any anyway, uh, you could, there is a sidebar that basically says that if you wanted to and the gem allows it, you can take the psychic keyword and basically play a psychic version of whatever that, that particular career is, which you know fits nicely with things like the Inquisitor, I'd say as a GM, you should probably put a few stompings on on people who try and go in certain ways, like psychic tech priests, in fluff, do not exist. Yeah. You know, as much as everyone may want to be the only psychic tech priest, being the only anything is is just a way of covering up the fact that they don't really know what they want to be. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it is designed so that there are things like, for example, um, we don't have librarians right now, so you could take a space marine, you know, ascend them to become a, a space marine librarian. There is no librarian system in powers at the moment, but, you know, you can still then get access to powers that way if you want to make a psychic space marine. Um, yeah, once again, Inquisitors, um, yeah. Got chaos the, Sorcerers. Chaos Sorcerers, yeah, the options are available too. Uh, I mean, you only technically need to have the psychic keyword, but it is very helpful to have the psychic mastery skill. Yes. Um, and, of course, some powers. Because yes. you need to go this. I mean, there is... Uh, unlike the older games, which had Sinesians as a skill, there is no inherent ability in the system to simply sense psychic powers because you're psychic. It, the, the GM may go and do things like if you're nearby a pariah or something, you might get a sensation of the, 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 the soul void of, of the pariah. Um, or you, they may even give you some sort of thing like, you know, a feeling of power when there is some great psychic force around you, but Sinesians is now a power. You have to actually buy in order to detect and divine information about psychic happenings. Yeah. The only thing that you can do without any psychic powers is deny the witch. So try and stop another psychic from using a power. Um, Alright, so once you've got a power, there is a process you go through to actually use it. First off, you declare what power you're using, and then you also say at what level of power are you, what level of strength. Uh, and there's basically three levels, one of which is open-ended. So the first one is bound. This is your standard, I'm not trying to set the world on fire, I'm just rolling my standard psychic mastery skill, uh, and minor powers can only be activated bound. Yeah. Um, then you've got unbound. So unbound basically means that you're unleashing your psychic power somewhat, and you get to add one additional wrath dice. So now you're rolling two wrath dice. So it's important to remember that if I've got a dice pool of seven dice, so I've now got six dice with one wrath dice, if I add a wrath dice, that is an extra, that is an eighth dice on top, not converting another dice in the pool into a, into a wrath dice. You're actually adding a whole extra dice. Yep. So therefore it increases the chance that you'll succeed. It also increases the chance that you'll fumble. That's it. Um, once you have used any power unbound, you can't use any power less than unbound for the remainder of the scene. I would assume that would also apply to minor powers. It doesn't really say in the book, but if I was doing it, I'd say, okay, if you've used a, a discipline power unbound, and in the same sense you want to use a minor power, it has to be unbound as well, because you, it's sort of described as you sort of unlock that 
psychic potential because, you know, the, the, yes, the power flows more easy, but so does the risk. You know, so. I, I'd say that it's more of a case of by using something unbound, you've stirred up the, the warp eddies around you. Yeah. And it's a little bit more turbulent. It's going to attract attention. And no matter what you do, that it, it's stirred up. It's going to attract attention. doesn't matter how careful you are in the future. It's going to cause problems. That's it. That, that, that's my interpretation. But honestly, yeah. your interpretation... It's up to the GM what they want to decide. That's just the rule. Exactly. Um, there's also a transcendent level. So with transcendent, uh, you can add two or more additional wrath dice. The the or more is limited by either the tier of the game or the rank of the character, whichever is greater. And however many dice you add, you automatically take that number of shock whether you pass or fail. Yeah. You're not you're not controlled to taking transcendent action at that point onwards. You are still, you know, locked into unbound from that point onwards, but yeah, really you're sort of taking a big risk by rolling so many wrath dice. And, of course, as if it needs to be mentioned, if you take a transcendent power, that means from then on you can only take unbound. Same yeah, thing. Exactly right. So you roll your dice. So first off, sixes, you want as well. Like, it's like any other dice roll. You want to get successes, sixes can be 50. But a six on the wrath dice, nothing exciting. There's no critical hit. There's no extra information, no extra power you can do, other than the fact it's just a, a raw six. Conversely, though, ones are a problem. If you get a one on any wrath dice, you need to roll on the perils of the warp chart. If you get a one on multiple wrath dice, you add one to the tens value of each roll or to your roll on the, on the perils of the warp chart. So, you know, the, the chart goes all the way from 11 up into the 140s. You know, so you would really need to be rolling very poorly to get, or, or, or throwing a lot of power in. Keeping in mind that, you know, if the game tier cuts out at five and the um, rank drop cuts out at five, the most you can really roll is six Wrath Dice, which is why there's a bit of how far you can go in the chart. But uh, certainly the high end of things is particularly bad. Yes. Um, there is an option of war, which I quite like, which is a lot of the, uh, the psychic phenomena that occur with Perils of the War will often require people in the area to make some sort of roll. So, you know, the floor may become slick with psychic energy and they have to make an agility test or fall down. They might see something that horrifies and they've got to make a resolve test or take corruption. Um, there is an option of rule that says that any troop NPCs and bystanders automatically fail any relevant tests. In the example of our own game from the other day, um, I used a, a relatively minor, a minor psychic power in a room with 150 people, you know, of which we knew... There were some chaos colders among the group. We didn't know how many. Could be 150, could be one. But uh, thankfully, the power went off without a hitch. <laughs> but yeah, with a bit of psychonomic coming about, it could have quickly turned nasty. So could have been very bad. Exactly right. Um, all right. So when you roll that, you're looking to hit the activation degree number of the power. So most powers have a fixed degree number, regardless of other factors. Um, sometimes the DN is based upon a um, uh, your target's abilities. Uh, so, for example, a direct attack power might still target the defense, whereas some powers like you look at Compel, which can make, you know, basically your typical give someone one word or one sense command, um, you need a, you need a difficulty fire to activate it, and they then roll against the power. Uh, now, when you have shifts available with psychic powers, you can shift into potency. So, under each psychic power, there'll be, a, there'll be one or more potency options, which basically say for this cost, one, two, three, that many shifts, you can do this, basically. Um, and some in, of them can only be done once. Yeah, but in a lot of cases, they're multiple times. So, for example, yeah. going back to Compel, 
for one shift, you can increase the number by one. So shift once, it becomes DN5, shift twice, becomes DN6, etc. for the person to resist. Uh, now, psychos, as I mentioned before, can deny the witch. They can choose to try and prevent a psychic power from going off in their area. Uh, to do that, they make a psychic mastery test, uh, which is what you normal, so that's your normal dice ball and psychic mastery dice ball. Um, and they're trying to hit a different number equal to the original different number of power, plus two, or plus three if the caster triggered any potency increases. So I, I quite like this fact that it means that powers that are easier to cast are also easier to stop. Uh, they don't have the psychic strength behind them, basically. Likewise, a person just shooting through the roof in terms of power it just adds one more ability for a person to actually deny as such. So, but with the base ability of plus two, powers will go off more regularly than they'll be denied. Yeah. Dep- from equal level psychers, as you talk about. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. But a more powerful psychers are more likely to get potency increases, which will increase the difficulty further. Yeah, but only by To one, deny. Yeah, but only by one, though. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Still swings it a little bit in the favour of the person who's, who's more powerful. That's it, exactly. Um, now, you, some powers require being sustained. So, simply to, to sustain a power, it's just something you'd say, I'm going to sustain this power. When you do that, all other rolls you make have an automatic de- uh, doing over increase of two. Uh, and if you sustain more than one power, it goes to four. You know, well, then it goes to six, etc. Every, every additional power you sustain adds a cumulative two to all your DMs for every other roll. Yeah. What's more, if you take any injury or shock, so wounds or shock, while you're maintaining powers, you're going to make a willpower test, so just straight willpower with a different number equal to how much damage or shock you took, fail, and all your powers end. So then you've got, in the psychic section after all the rules, you've then got a bunch of powers. So you've got minor powers, you've then got a universal power, which is smite. So neither a discipline power nor a minor power. For that reason, I'd say that you could use it unbound or transcend because it really says minor powers can be used down. When you look at character creation and character advancement, there are limits to how many powers you can have based upon the tier. There'll be a limit of how many discipline powers and a limit of the total number of powers as well. So there is a control there. What I haven't seen, and I thought this might have been the case, nowhere in the rules that say that you can only take powers from one discipline. If you look into the fluff of the game, a lot of psychers only really have powers from single discipline, plus smite, obviously. Smite's already like one you can take. Um... But yeah, so I, I couldn't see any rules that specifically precluded it. I don't know how you'd run it. I'd, I'd say they could. Um, it, my main issue was more the fact that in higher tier games, there's no rules to indicate how you can just forget a power to replace it with a more powerful version. Oh, yeah. So if you've got compel as a minor power, and yeah. you become a telepath, then you want to take a more powerful version of the same thing. Yeah. There's no real rules there to, to drop compel and take a more powerful I mean, version. I suppose it comes down to the GM there. The GM yeah. may say, okay, well, you can drop compel, get back the 10 points, but they can only be invested towards... You know, and you've got to do that. So, so if, if the more powerful version costs 30 points, you've got to accrue 20 points, and then it happens in that one change. You can't just drop the power first. Bank the points, you know, yeah, you need to have the yeah. ability right the way through. But even then, like, there's still advantage to the fact that compels only DN5. So if I had a telepath who could also, you know, you know, possess and control people, there is still benefit having a low power power like compel, which once again being a minor power is more suited to being cast unbound, so bound, I should say, you know, less obvious, yeah, etc. etc. So that's the basic rules of psychic powers. I think that they're relatively elegant. 
Yeah, I think the main thing is it was like yeah, particularly. I, the main thing I like is the fact that it uses the same system to use your psychic powers as to do any other skill. That's it. Yeah. Which is a big advantage over the original original versions of psychic powers we had in uh, Dark Heresy yeah, First Edition. Yeah, we the number of dice in front of you. You know, not wanting get nine. That's something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know, you don't want to have multiple systems which. Don't seem to work together. Yeah, the more common it is, the easiest to remember it. All right, well, let's go and now talk about a particular psychic career, shall we? Yes. All applicants report to the administratum for career assignment. So even though we said that you can build any character presumably in a psyker with the right keyword, I want to focus today on sanctioned psyker, which is you know psychics as it was intended to be. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about first about the role of the sanctioned psyker. Normally, a psyker in the forty k setting is Different, largely dependent upon the type of psychic powers they have and where they're basically assigned. You know, the life of an astropath is very different to the life of an Imperial Guard psychic. Yeah. Um, if you look at the sanctioned psyker in the core book, it is basically intended to be the Imperial Guard version. So, um, yeah, not, not necessarily the primary psyker, more just sort of the the rank and file psyker that joins the Imperial Guard. Yeah. Not rank and file, they're all officers. That's true, that's right. So they're officers, yeah. Not no one would accept yeah. an order from them, but they're officers. Yeah. And they're, they're, not, they're not weird brains either. They're actually, yeah. Like, yeah, they're uniform members of the Guard who have psychic powers. Still obviously trained by the Astrotelepathica and the Scholastica Psychana, but uh, still, you know, soldiers in the Guard. Um, it's important to remember that, that PC psychers in the game will generally have more mobility and freedom than a regular Imperial psychic. Yeah. You know, like, like the lives of an astropath is very rigidly controlled. Yeah. You know, where you think about like a Wrath and Glory game where you've got, say, like our game or an inquisitorial group, you know, a psyker may give them, be given free reign to basically go around doing their job, using their powers as required. You know, with some caveats about making sure they don't go and tear open the doors of reality, you know, in a noble's court or something. I suppose it's important to realize that psychers will only ever be trusted so far by the Imperium. I actually, um, I've been reading uh, Nemesis, one of the Horus uh, Heresy novels at the moment, and there was a scene that where there was a psyker. So this is this is post uh, the Nikea Declaration, so psychers are you know, now banned, um, except the fact that dispensation has been given to certain groups, like for example, rogue traders, who operate you know a, a, maybe a single useful psyker, and there's a scene where it's sort of talking from the psyker's point of view, and she wears like an iron. Um, talk around the neck. Uh, talk, no, talk around the head. Anyway. No, talk around the neck. Talk around the neck. Okay, okay. That's like bolted clothes that has the dictate of Makia inscribed on the outer surface. And it absolutely, it does absolutely nothing. But all the psychers have been asked to wear them and they basically tell the regular people, oh, it's a psychic nullifier. Just to make the people feel better that, you know, that, that, now, now the Empress said this thing is bad, it must be awful, even the ones he approved. So, they sort of wanted to give this sort of false sense of security to other Imperial citizens by saying, oh, that's all right, the psyker's got a dampening fork on, even though it does absolutely nothing. Yeah. I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, certainly the, uh, the average member of the Imperial only trusts the psyker so far, to be honest, if at all. Um, which is why my character being the psyker in our game is pretty much trying to be very low-key with the powers. It doesn't walk around with a, you know, a forced stave or, you know, wear, 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 wear robes and dorm with, you know, eye symbols, that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't think your character even has a sanctioning brand. Oh, well, I, 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 we'll come. We'll, we'll talk about offline, <laughs> shall we? 
Uh, okay, so the, the Sanctioned Psyker, the traits. Now, first off, they're a 50 build point cost, which is one of the most expensive Tier 2 options. Yep. The one thing I will point out is the fact that you start play with both Smite and one minor psychic power. So Smite has a zero cost, but it, it basically costs 10 to buy separately. Because if you just bought the... If you to, to another career and added the Psyker talent, you've then got to go and buy Smite for 10 points. Yeah. Um, and then other Psychic powers are up to 10 points in cost. So potentially 20, 20 point. of your 50 points are the powers you get for free that have been in class. It is tier 2, as I said. Um, it requires a base will power of 4. So you've already got 15 points invested, 15, 18 points, 15 points to get into to, to rank 4, so that's quite a bit there, only a total of 200. Uh, you need to have Psychic Mastery 1, so nice and cheap. Uh, you get the keywords of Imperium, Adeptus Action Telepathica, Psyka, and Scholastica Psychana. Um, having both Scholastica Psychana and Adeptus Action Telepathica seems a little bit redundant. I mean, I guess it's the same as having like Adeptus Sororitas and also your aura. Um, yeah. That being said, I mean, they may bring out more gear in the future which has both keywords, in which case it becomes cheaper to get, for example. Uh, okay, they get plus zero influence, no surprises there. Uh, now, their special ability, um, and I find this interesting, so their special ability is the fact that they do get Smite and one minor psychic power for free, and then can go and buy regular psychic powers up to this. This is the funny thing. So you look at Tech Priests and Psychers. Tech Priests get something for free, Psychers get psychic powers for free. They don't get any other sort of fluff ability um, with regard to Every other, every other archetype gets some little thing they can do that is in line with their particular ability. And you recall back to when we, when we spoke to Ross, when we interviewed Ross a few shows ago, and we talked about the fact that people have started to make up their own house rules for characters changing archetypes. It's already discussed in the book with yeah. a scout becoming a tactical marine. And it basically says, you know, you lose your old ability, you gain your ability. You know, a tech priest can't lose their augmentics well, tech, tech priests do have an ability. They've got a uh, ability which allows Master of Machines, which lets them do tech roles in half the time. So I'm thinking of the the um, uh, the Scary Master Orcas. The um, the um, your standard Scarian your Scarian um, Skitari. Skitari, Skitari, yeah. yeah. They um uh yeah they, all they get is their psychic. Is their is their, is their, yeah, their, their, their metal. essentially their special ability is the. Um, Cybernetic reconstruction track. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Talent. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Which they couldn't really lose if they were to become something more powerful. You know? and, and it's but it's not the cybernetic reconstruction talent. So they could take it again. Yeah. And they could have them both combined. That's the difference. So would they both combine? I mean, the, it, it's, um, it's it allows you to add half your. Both of them would allow you to add half your rank to soak test. So you'd be able to add two lots of half your rank. That's right. Yeah. Which isn't huge. Yeah. But, you know. I just yeah, that's funny. Yeah, the psychic, the psychic careers, and it's the same with like so. So all, all the Eldar careers. Okay, so Eldar Rangers, Eldar Corsairs get special traits; they can do something. Eldar Warlocks get psychic powers for free. The funny thing about that as well is the fact that Eldar are allowed to buy a minor psychic power as well. Yeah, even if just it's for even, being an Eldar, even, even a tier one. That's yeah. it. but they've still got to buy the um, the psychic mastery skill. Like only, yeah. only if they buy the psychic mastery skill. Do they get access to the power? They can't. They, they have, they have access. 
Um, but yeah, but like, once again, so any any career which gets psychic powers seems to only get psychic powers as their as their special ability. So I know it's not a lot because you, know, you can't really give that one. You can't give that back really. You do yeah. want to change if there is some rules in the future. Uh, all right, their war gear, and this is where it's pretty obvious. They're a guard. Psyka is Lad's pistol, force rod. Psychana Mercy Blade, Guard Issue Mess Kit, Blanket Grooming Kit, Two Ration Packs. So pretty much, other than the weapons and lack of armor, it's identical to uh, Imperial Power, basically. Yeah. Uh, I do like the fluff behind the Psychana Mercy Blade. Pretty much, it's just a knife. You can just use it to end your own life if you think you're going to be suddenly possessed by a demon. Yeah. So. But it's and a mono knife. It's a mono knife. It is good stats, I guess. Alright, so. When it comes to building a sanctioned psyker, um, I certainly have a lot less notes than I usually do for character creation because I think that a lot of it comes down to how you customize it. Um, attribute wise, obviously willpower is a big one. I think that, um, intellect, you know, they're normally going to be a more intellectual character than, than other characters might be. And probably even toughness because once again, a lot of the powers can take their toll. Physically. Physically. Especially know. with all that shock which you're going to be giving up if you, if you decide to start using powers transcendent. Yeah, once you, but don't forget, shock is based on willpower though. This is the thing, like, like willpower, so willpower affects oh, yeah, shock, yeah, yeah. resolve, conviction, you know, um. Yeah. And, and of course your, your, um, psychic mastery as well. So yeah, that's right, yeah. Any, anybody that dumps that willpower in this game is making a big mistake, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah including the person I agree with you. Yes. <laughs> Um, but once again, like toughness. So no skills run off toughness, but it affects your soak and your wounds. You know? So it's certainly, I think, that yeah, there is a physical toll extracted by psychic powers. Skill-wise, really, awareness, I think, as a... as a, I, I, I do think psychics are going to be more aware. Awareness you know, both, both themselves and, and scholar, for sure. Scholar, yeah, obviously psychic mastery. Maybe insight, if you want, like, a interpersonal skill, because once again, it's more about that... that Understanding of people rather than their ability to interact with them directly. So I think the insights sort of got to go for there. And then with talents, there's only one talent which really is made for the psychic, which is favored by the war. Yep. It says you can reroll psychic mishaps, pretty much just means you can reroll your results on the perils of the war table. Yeah, of course, but if you've got a huge plus on that, it's not really relevant. Much. And it's 40 points, big cost. But I mean, that being said, if you're going to be rolling with, with big pluses at some point in time, you know, like keep in mind that, you know, even a plus one, starting with a six on your first dice, is going to be in the 70s. You know, you might want to re-roll that and you can get it down into the 20s yeah. for a plus one. Um, the other one I'd look at probably for a psyker, and it's relatively cheap as far as talents go, is unquestioning faith. A lot of psychers do have a an unwavering faith in the God Emperor, you know, um, that they sort of see their ability as a curse and the God Emperor as a light leading past their curse and such. Uh, it gives you a, a point of faith and it allows you to use that faith to resist psychic powers. You can take it multiple times to get more faith as well, and you can then use it to also defend others with from psychic powers, because I've always thought that the most effective counter to a psychic is another psychic. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Or a bolt round to there. Yes, yeah, right. Or a second, second mercy blade, you know, shoved upwards through the bridge of the nose. Yeah. <laughs> they, probably don't, they probably don't stab themselves in the brain. I'm guessing they probably cut their own throat or something, but uh, we'll have to look at at some point. Um... All right, and then finally, some tips for playing a sanctioned psyker. Uh, I'd say that you want to work out for your character, how do they feel about being psychic? You know, is it how they're trying to explore? Is it a curse they have to live with? You know, do they hide it? Do they flaunt it? You know, what is their, what is their psychic life experience like, basically? Um, you've got to remember that 
the psychic the psyche has to take and accept a lot of risks. You know, because in the, the day every time you use a psychic power it is a gamble. This game system will generate a complication one in six times. Sixteen percent of your rolls are gonna produce a one, even when you succeed in the psychic power. So that means that, you know, roughly more than one in every ten times you will have a problem. Some, a problem something go on, you know? Yeah. Um and also I guess be prepared for the fact that your character will not automatically be liked. Anybody that knows they're a psycho is a little really won't trust them. So, yeah, just except the fact that NPCs that find out what your character is are probably going to treat them pretty poorly. And, you know, it's just a game. The GM's not trying to be an asshole and make you feel bad. It's just it's a, it's a feature of what you're playing, basically. Yeah. You know, I, I do the same thing to a person who made, a, made a, a Fellowship One character. Um, because at the end of the day, no matter how nice the player is, yeah, everyone else can see their characters a jerk. Yeah. yeah. All right, then let's uh, move on, shall we? Yes. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So it's only been customary with a lot of role-playing games for a launch soon after release to have or to be a adventure anthology. You know, some example stories to really get the group moving and understand what the theme is like, and maybe a jump-off point for a campaign. Yeah. And in Wrath and Glory, that really came about with Dark Tides. So Dark Tides is a five-adventure anthology for Wrath and Glory. Um, but it, so first I'm going to say, I think the product is very good. It has some things you need to think about before you start running it. Um, so I want to give you guys a bit of a run-through on it in a, in a spoiler-free way as possible. So you can still go and sort of play it or run it after this. Um, okay, so basically you've got five adventures in it. The first one is Descent. Now, Descent is made for a uh, Tier 1 or 2 group. Uh, I think that either of those will be fine. Like a Tier 1 group could handle the threats and a Tier 2 group won't be over- won't be overwhelming in this one. Um, I like Dark Tides. It really reminds me of this sort of classic Call of Cthulhu adventure where you start up investigating a murder and, uh, you know, you, you examine further and then you end up, you know, following leads into the lower part of, oh, okay, let me, let me, sorry, let me go back a step. All the events in Dark Tides are set on the same hive world. Okay, a planet called Tribius, or Tribune, um, which I'm guessing is based off the Greek legend of Spiller and Tribius. Um, because everything is sort of oceanic. This, this world itself is an ocean world with the hives that are rising out of the water. And, you know, the industry of the hives is to farm kelp, basically, from the waters for food production. Mmm, kelp. Uh, but anyway, so, so Descent basically involves, you know, starting off in the high levels of the hive, doing a murder investigation, and then going, tracking the leads down to the lower level. It is as classic a dark heresy or, you know, sort of horror, thriller, investigation story game concept you can get. Um, it has a pretty spectacular ending, as far as, like, you know, you can really make quite action-packed. Um, we did it in a night when we played it. Uh, I think that if you wanted to, you could really stretch it out. Like, with any game that involves traveling around a hive, you can either sort of hand wave, okay, you're top of the hive now, you go to the bottom of the hive, or you could literally spend sessions just running your characters through all the various sights and sounds and spells they see, getting from the top to the bottom, basically. Um, but yeah, Descent is a pretty classic adventure. Okay, the second one is uh, called Sleepwalker. This is for tiers two to three. Probably out of the adventures, this one was, it's hard to say least favorite. Like, I, I still enjoyed it, but I found this one was just, um, 
It's not, we're not just going through some of the rest. You know, it very much is a horror theme. Um, it's all about sort of, you know, like the, the horror and nightmares and the, the twisted twisting of the mind. Um, if you were looking to run Dark Tides, then I, you know, even if you just ran, like, so say, this, say this read and ran Descent, and, you know, and your group liked it, and your group wants to keep playing Wrath and Glory, so okay, now I'm going to play Sleepwalker. My advice to you is make sure you read the whole book before you run the second adventure. Because um, there are elements of commonality between Adventure 2 and Adventure 4 and 5 in terms of location. And the way that things are described in Adventure 2 regarding Ironwatch, if you were to only read that description and relate that description to your players, they might get a different idea in their head of what Ironwatch is. And then when you come back to Adventure 4, which is a lot more involved, you know, okay, well, I, I, I didn't picture that at all. You know, so I really suggest you rec- recommend you read Adventure 4 and 5 so you get a full understanding of what Watch is, and that way you'll be able to get your players to understand it better in, in Adventure 2. Uh, Adventure 3 is, um, yeah, I love Adventure 3. This is uh, it's called Court Between. Um, I think it's a really great way to start an adventure. It is basically, it starts with the players being sent into a dispute to mediate a dispute between nobles. You know, so your classic, you know, the, the, the Lord is dead. Who is the new Lord going to be? Here are these two people. The players need to decide which one is righteous, which one is wrong, and, you know, how much you know, which one's going to lead. And of course, like with any 40k thing, neither is actually righteous, you know, but it just comes down to what you uncover and what you decide about them all. Um, and, you know, literally, it's a very open adventure because you can have multiple possible outcomes. I don't want to give all the outcomes because it could spoil it somewhat, but basically it does take into the adventure what the outcome, or what the long-term effects of each possible outcome of the adventure are, which I quite like. Um, it is tentatively tied storyline-wise to um, to Adventure 1, given that the person that you are replacing died in Adventure 1 and once again they're all set in the same location. But it would still be a very good standard adventure. So tiers 3 to 4, I think that Tier 4 characters would be overkill on this. You know, I, I think that, because, you know, Tier 4 characters are about things like Inquisitors and, you know, Primaris Marines, that sort of stuff. Um, I Sorry, think, I'm just picturing now a Primaris squad deciding who gets to rule over a planet. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> having dinner party. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, yeah, it, it fits better as a Tier 3 um, because, you know, the combat in it would be then more deadly, but it's not, it's not a combat heavy module for sure. So the combat would then really stand out. Um, but also, yeah, it makes more sense for these to be high-level members of, you know, because basically these missions, if for, for whatever anything else, you're being sent here by Jacob Radius, the, um, the road trader. So, you know, to be agents of a more powerful thing makes more sense when it comes to why you're here doing these things. Um, okay, then you've got Iron Watch, which is the fourth adventure. Now, this is for tiers four to five. This is a dungeon crawl. To be honest, you know, it, it is a, a series of encounters in a entirely hostile environment. You know, the, the amount of interaction is minimal. Um, it's really just, you know, crying through the enemy forces and, and beat things. It's, it's got a, it's got a clock associated with it. So there is, you know, a constraint of time. My, my one big complaint with iWatch is I really didn't like the villain. Just the way the villain is sort of set up and the way they attack is for me is comedic. I think that it ruins, it takes the horror out of the game to have what I equate to basically being a slapstick type of, type of villain. You know, even though you're talking about things like with demonic stuff, 
it is still, uh, I, for me, it just came up rather silly. You know, okay. and, and the artwork in the book didn't didn't really sort of. Oh, look, the artwork is good, but it didn't make the enemy seem any less silly to me once I saw the artwork as well. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it once again, but yeah, so I watch is a strong dungeon crawl. If you want to get together and throw dice at, at monsters, great. I just found the villain to be a little bit sort of not underwhelming in terms of power, just not in keeping with the rest of the theme to so, a degree. So you're suggesting grim up the the bad guy. Yeah, even just change his attack. His attack, his attack is what, what I find very silly. Okay. Uh, and I'll tell you about it out, outside of the... Because <laughs> you haven't played it. You, no. you, you weren't involved in these original playthroughs. Um, okay, then you've got the final adventure is called Twisted Strands, which is a tier 3 to 4, so it's gone back. Okay, But there's a reason for this. It is not intended that you play Adventure 5 with the same characters as Adventures 1 to 4. Because Adventure 1 to 4 are made for... Imperial characters working for Jekyll Veronius. So, you know, yes, I suppose you could have a soul Eldar or Orc among there, but you talk about going to a high... I mean, imagine turning up to Adventure 3 where you're sort of choosing between which of these two nobles will become a planetary governor, and there's an Orc there. An Orc you know, boy. An Orc boy. <laughs> an Orc boy in a Primaris Marine at a dinner party trying to decide. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so while it doesn't certainly say you can't have those, it is... Heavily recommend for imperial characters, but Adventure Five not the case. Adventure Five is for a group of only Eldar characters. Um, it does have pre-gen, so to speak. Or you can you don't have to make characters for it. You can take the character they give you. But the thing about Adventure Five is it is happening concurrently with Adventure Four. So literally, the 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 players in Adventure Five are in the same place as the characters in Adventure in Adventure Four at the same time seeing the same events from different angles. Which, okay, first off, as an idea, very innovative. You know, games do this sometimes very well. Here, it requires a bit of discipline, I think, both on the part of the GM and the players. Um, it's like, if if you were to say, I'm going to make a role-playing game about time travel, okay? Yeah, and, and then, of course, players straight away want to go and kill Hitler. Well, I mean, it's, it's more a case of... They want to go kill themselves. Well, they, they want to go yeah, change the yeah, effects yeah. of a previous game. But they want to see what happens. They, they want to test parallels. They want to see what happens if this event is set in stone. So what happens if we change that? And likewise here, they have played through and completed Adventure 4. So therefore, Adventure 5 is technically in their past. And they're seeing the things that they did. Now, it's very easy. And it's really the way it's up. Is that the player characters from 5 and 4 should never actually interact. They should just see the outcomes um, there is an opportunity for the Eldar characters to interact with Imperial characters in Adventure 5, but it's better done with a group of... It, it gives you some optional Imperial characters. So it does say, yes, you could have the the, char- the, the Eldar characters meet the Imperial characters, but it would really be hard to do because you haven't done that in, if you haven't done that already in your previous sessions and such. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you don't need to have run Adventure 5 to get the whole story really, it's just seeing part of the story from a different angle, which I think is a nice idea. Mm-hmm. So first thing I want to talk about when it comes to doing uh, Dark Tides is that I think that it is not a classic jump off your campaign adventure book. Because first of all, Adventure 1 starts Tier 1 to 2. Adventure 4 is Tiers 4 to 5. So there's a big range there straight away. I think, personally, there are three ways I would consider running Dark Tides. 
The first one would be, I use Dark Tides as a background basis for my campaign. So, Adventure 1, uh, for my players just main characters, they've been sent to Tribune by Veronius to investigate this murder, and they, they resolve that whole issue. Okay, everything is good on Tribune. Now we're going to go off and do other stuff. We're going to run GM run adventures. We're going to run other future other scenarios. And at some point later on, they become Tier 2, close to Tier 3. They get sent back to uh, Tribune to investigate the miners. Yeah. You know, um, and then once again, they go away. They come back later to work out what they're going to do about the dead guy. Um, and so you have a full regular campaign, you know, dozens, you know, tens of sessions long. Um, but you keep coming back to Tribune in order to resolve the next step in the Dark Tide story as it goes. Yeah. That's option one. Option two is you say to your players, okay, guys, we're going to play Dark Tides. I'm anticipating five to 15 sessions and we're done. Okay? You play Adventure 1, make, make, make Tier 1 character. You play Adventure 1, you finish, you level up to, to Tier 2. You play Adventure 2, you finish, level up to Tier 3. You, know, you just keep just keep boosting the characters each time. And so realistically speaking, we're only seeing those snippets of those characters' lives where they are on Tribune during um, uh, these adventures. And really, once it's done, you've got Tier 5 characters now, or Tier 4 or Tier 5. You know what they're going to go, okay, now we finish this, let's go and start. Let's go continue our campaign with you, Orc Boy, and Primaris Marine, and Inquisitor, walking around, kicking ass, and taking names. Um, so really, as a, as a standalone thing. Third option is very similar. Once again, it's standalone, but in this case, you run the whole thing start to finish, but you create new characters for each module. So they make a Tier 1 group, they play Descent. They make a Tier 2 group, they play Sleepwalk. And they make a Tier 3 group, they play Court Between, etc. And the story allows for this. It doesn't require players from one to have been at the others, you know. A group of low-level mooks could have discovered the, the governor's death, and then a group of more experienced representatives of the rogue trader could have been sent to the planet to, to deal with the line of succession, basically. Yeah. So that one works as well. And what you could do there as a, as a campaign base, if you wanted to, is say, okay, all right, guys, we've played this. You've now got four different Imperial characters, different tiers, and an Eldar character. What's your favourite? What's your favourite? And we'll continue on the storyline with those characters from this point, basically. Yeah. And that's an option, too. But I think that one of those sort of ones is, is the right way to go. Um, I think overall, the book itself is really nicely written. I think it's clear that the different adventures had different writers. Um, and it almost feels a little bit like, um, so not Hull Trilogy, but the Apostasy Gap in, um, in Dark Heresy, where the, it, it sort of felt like, okay, these were good standalone adventures that have been pulled together with a bit of hot glue, basically, to make them all become part of the same story. Um, yeah, it I sound, think, sounds like it's a bit stronger tied together than yeah, the Hostess Gambit. Hostess Gambit, Hostess yeah, Gambit yeah. I felt, was very, very weak yeah, in, 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 in the fact that they were tied together. They could have been separate adventures a lot more easily than, yeah. than being linked together. With this one, Adventure 1 is very tied to Adventure 3. Adventure 2 is very tied to Adventures 4 and 5. Yeah. So there, yes, there is an overall concurrence, but really speaking, it is two individual storylines that all take place on the same planet and intertwine because you go back and forth between them, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just talking about things like the different writers. So, for example, um, just in the way that the chapter's laid out. So, like, all the adventures have their NPC details, dramatists per se, at the end, except for Adventure 3, where it's all pushed to the front. 
because it's important in Adventure 3 because it's all about personalities, about you know learning what these people are, what their motivations are, and it just feels a little bit disjointed by the fact that there is that sort of that different layout and di- I mean, and not just not just like the layout of chapters, but just the way things are written, the way the acts are put together and concluded is a little bit different. I think overall the book is definitely worth getting, and they are good adventures that I would certainly encourage people to run. Um, I just say just go at it with a caveat that it is not your typical buy this, run this, continue campaign from here without a bit of work anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, Mike, you have a any, any questions based on what I said? Um, in, in what sort of world do people get books of adventures and then not read the whole thing and just go, you know what, I'm just going to start from Adventure 1. I've read, you know, most of Adventure 1. I'll run that and then go from there. Yeah, so... You, you know, because you, you said to us at the start, you know, make sure you read the whole thing through. Why wouldn't you in the first place? Okay, I mean, so, it, so I think that that is that, that is a problem. It, it, is, it is not something. It's not something that you do because you get a book and you cover to cover it. Okay, other people get books and they have different lifestyles over. They have a hard time to get read the book, and you get these situations where you know a group of players get excited about playing a game. Yeah, yeah. They go to the store, they buy Dark Heresy, Dark Ties is out. They buy they buy Dark Ties. There's literally players saying, there, "Hey guys." Let's go back to such and such a place tonight and make characters, you know. And, and there is a push on the GM to run something, to ta- put them on the table as soon as possible, you know. And then they just read the band. I mean, look, I mean, look. These are the same people that, that start using electronic equipment before they read the manual, aren't they? <laughs> That's right. Well, it's, it's happened more probably. But I mean, I remember this with a like dark heresy campaign would be that I would get a dark heresy book, I would fully read it, I would say, okay, that's going to come into my adventure. Four months from now, you know, and I decide that's when I'm going to run it. And I get to that point, and I've sort of forgotten the outline, and I've got to sort of have the book in front of me. And occasionally, you know, you, you, you were finishing a scene and saying, "Okay, we go here next." And I'm going, "Okay, give me a sec while I just quickly remind myself what happens in this scene," yeah. you know, because and and, and I, I might have forgotten details like you have between Sleepwalker and Iron Watch, where the the way the setting is described is is quite different. It needs to be, needs to be reconciled. Did you think the setting is described differently because of different writers or? Just the way that it's described is... It's possible. So I think the problem is that... Um, and I don't, want to, I don't want to spoil it here, but... So I'm watching Space Interest, okay? And so um, Sleepwalker talks about the players getting to the the outside of the prison where it describes, like, palisades and walls and guard, guard positions like you would think of a conventional prison in a suburb, you know, or in, in, a, in a part of a city. Whereas when you get to Ironwatch in... Event four or adventure four, it is like a separate spire attached to the outside of the hive with like its own oh, lander platform, okay. you know. And the thing is, if you read enough about Ironwatch, you realise that both things can exist concurrently. But if you just and they're, but they're both called Ironwatch. So you've got to realise that where the players go in Venture Two, although it's called Ironwatch, is not the same facility that they're in in Adventure Four, which is also called Ironwatch. It's part of the same institute, but it's not. You know, you, you talk, like, you're talking like low security versus high security, basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that will cause confusion, such you know, you start to describe differently. And because I've only run these once, so so you might find I just read these and read the book yourself. It might be more obvious. So that was just my observation from a single run through of these adventures. Okay. Fair enough. Anyway, so do check it out, and we will move on with the show. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. All right, Mike. Um, this came up. The other night in the game, um, where typical first session. Describe um, your character. Describe your character. Aware of the different 
techniques that each person used to describe their characters. And I wouldn't actually say that any particular one was wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that what works... Some with, were uninspired, but yes. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and of course, when you're talking about describing your character, forming that... When you, any description. This, this includes the DM giving, you know, or GM gives a group of NPCs. It's all about really getting what's in your head into other people's heads. Okay? Now, first off, I think that... Um, okay, so let's look at one of the characters. So I have the Sister of Battle character, for example. This is being played by a person who is very stats-driven. Okay? So, who chose the Sister of Battle not because they were interested in the fluff or what the episode was like, but they basically felt that to make a melee combatant, having power and armor at character creation was the most mid-maxi way of doing it. You know, so for them, the Sister of Battle was an archetype to simply tick the boxes that they, they wanted to have as such. Yeah. And so for that reason, I think that player had a strong sense of the character's identity. They didn't think too much about what was her um, life like you know, in the past, where is she from... Uh, what trials did she face in the past? What might have been left on her? It's like, I, I am a chainsword supported by a suit of power. You know, and so when the, the person was asked to describe their character, their response was, I don't know, like, you know, what a sister battle looks like, you know? Um, and, and the only questions, so, so some people ask questions, but those questions were answered not by the characters. Um, well, not by the player's connection with the character, just by filling in the blanks with fluff, you know. So, for example, what colour is Rama? Okay, well, it's this order, so therefore it's black. You know, does the character have a bob? You know, sort of stuff, you know. So, the, 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 these things that the, the player didn't really have a, a strong sense of character self connection. Uh, and that's not necessarily wrong, that's just that player's style. Okay, so another person, the person playing a, um, uh, an assassin. When they were asked, they looked, they, they basically had a picture ready. They just held the picture and said, this is what my character looks like. You know, so no more sort of generic than just, this is it. You know, straight away, I've found a picture that fits what I have in my head. And now you see that picture, therefore, you know what the picture is in my character. Yeah. Very straightforward, very easy, provided because you can find a picture that matches what you've got in your head, you know. Yeah. Uh, and because this person, once again, wasn't too connected to any particular ideal. They, they just did a Google image search on sort of like, you know, Ninja or something, that's something you know, and, and just pick the first picture they thought looked cool and could fit in the forty pair setting, basically. Is that a fair statement you say about that? Yeah, yeah I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think they were a little bit more careful than that. They, they were less careful when at first they thought they had to be female, but when they realised that no, there are male <laughs> death cults out there. Yeah, well, it's because we talked about using miniatures, and I was, I was talking about painting miniatures, and the guys like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this character, and I'm like, oh, I've only got female death cult assassins, and he sort of looked at me like, okay, I've got to change. The character is like, no, no, there are, there's like, plenty of ways other, around it. Yeah, plenty of other models, plenty of, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Just that the Death Cult assassin figures produced by Games Workshop only have the, the, two, the two devout sisters, basically. Yeah. Um, so there were two examples. Now, you know, other people describe their character by liking it to, so, okay, so for example, take this and modify it in this way. Yeah. yeah, and we've we've we've, we've had that in the past in some of the games. Bruce Willis with mobile. And this thing is like, yeah, we've, we've we've in the past we've dumped on one of our players. So I think this is the shows and lines of us that basically saying he his standard way of describing characters was to pick a you know a famous a, person, famous person, and add a stylistic change or aesthetic that, that that made them theirs basically. And we always thought that was funny, and we knocked on it. But at the end of the day, 
it's not that bad once you go back to the idea that the idea of the, the point of describing your character is to put what's in your head in somebody else's head. And starting with a base that they can start, that they can follow, that they know, and building on that is a very effective way of doing that because the person already has an image of, they know what Bruce Willis looks like, they know what a mohawk looks like, they can just attach those in their head and go, oh, dear God, what have you done? <laughs> you know, but, I mean, <laughs> it, it, still, it still fits that way. Yeah. So, I mean, Mike, when you're asked to describe a character, what is your, you know, start, what's, what's your thought, what do you, what do you start with? In order to describe a character. Uh, so okay, so let me let, let me pick it, pick any NPC that you used in the game of the night. Think about how you how you would go about describing that person. Okay, well, in all of the cases, it will start out the same. I, I decided on a style that they had. Yep. So, for example, we'll go with the, the commander of the protectors, who the enforcers of the planet. Yep. They essentially dressed like patchwork Roman soldiers. With plumed helmets with light globes on top. Yeah, the Nepalets. Yes. <laughs> and um, yeah, that, that was generally the, the, the way I had it in my head, and then I just described it in a way that would get that across. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it's, I mean, it, it really comes down to there you throughout the visual aesthetic, you know. So, yeah. the, I, mean, I guess there's, there's three things that you can convey in a Well, case. they were uniform soldiers yeah. of, of a type. They all had the same general aesthetic, and then there were some which were fat, some which were thin, some which were elderly, and some which were not. Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I think there's, I think there's three things that you can convey when you describe a person visually. So, first off, is their visual style, the clothes they're wearing, the colours that they display. You know, like you say, uniforms, for example, um, age. Uh, you know, the things that are immediately obvious that are almost binary states. You know, when it comes to visual identification. Um, the second thing is you can convey their personality. You know, a, a person's inward emotions often show outwardly. You know, so a person who's under stress is often clearly under stress. Not all the time. You know, yeah. Some people are very good at internalizing things. But, you know, in the case of the NPCs or PCs that are described, you know, do they seem confident? Do they seem out of their depth? You know, these are things that you can't just say, because they're wearing yellow, they're confident. You know, it, it's not a binary statement. Like it's really something that a person would assess about another person by reading their body language, their, their face, their language, their, their actions, their, their actions, etc. Um, and the third thing you can convey is about their past. So you can describe things like scars. You can describe things like, you know, knickknacks on their equipment. You know, weird things about their weapons or things that are oddities. So the moment you describe a uniform, the uniform becomes a a template state, and everything that differs from that template state is an interesting point about that character. So if all the protectors carry you know, power malls, the one guy carrying a sword stands out. And, you know, if you describe that, you know, when you, we go and talk to this one guy and this guy's wearing a sword, it's like, okay, so why is he wearing a sword? You know, are the power malls rare and he's lost his one? You know, did he take it from a, from a fallen combatant? You know, does he not trust power weapons and he, he, he prefers to use a conventional weapon? That's the thing, you know. That, that once you have that, once you establish that template, you can then, when you, the, the variations become the interesting points. Yeah. Um, I think this is important for you, describing it on your own character, not on your own character, but also NPCs as a GM. Uh, so, yeah, when I describe people, I try to think about, and I don't always manage to do it, you know, it's all, it's all going to say this is the way I'll try to do it, but, don't worry about it, but I try to think about what are the, the key visuals that people will pick up on, you know, so colors, uniforms, weapons, you know, things that stand out. 
Um, how is their emotional state obvious, if if at all? You know, and, and, or what what is obvious about their emotional state? You know, and what can the characters divine about the person from their appearance? Things like their, their past history, or what questions can be raised by it as well? Yeah, uh, and I think that you know these are things that would really help to to bowl out a character. I always remember a story from um, going back to uh, we probably mentioned the show in the past where in our old vampire game, I think it was your character went out looking for uh, someone to feed on. You know, so I went, went looking for a, a, a human to, to drink blood from us in the, in the game and described a person in a park as such. You the know, busker. The busker, yeah. And, and um, which is, uh, is busker in Australia, yeah, I don't know. Uh, oh, uh, like, like a, a street performer. Street performer, yeah. And for whatever reason, the description made you not want to feeling that person, like, you know, whatever it is, you either took pity on them or they were not the, they not really sort of character sort. And the fact that it was not just a guy in a park, it was actually this person who looked this way and was doing this thing, went, okay, no, I leave that person alone and I go and find somebody else. You know, and I said, okay, you find a guy. It's like, okay, fifth of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, it was a little bit, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you can really convey a lot with, with enhancing character description. And look, nothing tells a player, um, that an NPC is unimportant more than just hand waving their appearance. Yes. Yeah, he looks like just every other enforcer you've seen. Yes. Yeah. It's like, okay, this guy's clearly not an important character. Yeah, and you can use that also to, to steer, to, I won't say railroad, but he's in a little way, railroad players away from certain actions if they uh, get obsessed with the red fish. That's <laughs> it. <Yes. laughs> So hopefully that helps you for your own games and for your own characters as well. I think yeah. it's important. But as I said, there is no wrong way to describe characters. Whatever way you think is going to be most effective for you to put what's in your head into the other players' heads so that they visualize the same things that you do. That's really what I'm uh, I disagree a little bit. Yep. Yeah, I, I feel that if you, when you create the character, you finish making a character, you've got stats on the paper, just spend a couple of minutes thinking about what they might look like. Yeah. Because you are going to be asked in the game. Yeah. For some reason, every player, when you ask them, looks shocked that they've got to describe their character. Yet I have never, ever had any game ever anywhere where I haven't had to at least give a cursory description of what my character looks like. You know, it's not far out shocking that you're going to be asked, so at least have a general idea so you're not going... um, I don't know, a, a sister of battle, I guess. <laughs> so, so, so this this is a funny story you've lived in now. So um, last week I had the opportunity once again to guest star on AP Gaming Reels Battle Trek channel, yep. which is now restarted for, for 2019. And I, I was in the show on Friday. I'll be in the show this coming Friday as well. And between the two, in the season break, uh, one cast member left, a new cast member joined. Another cast member decided to replace their character. But because of circumstances outside of the GM's control, they started the new season a week later than they planned to. And my availability is constrained more because I have to go and do jury service shortly. So I couldn't move my time back by a week to start a week later. So they decided rather than having an intro session first and then the two sessions with me, they started the two sessions with me. So this meant that the first session we played last Friday, we literally went into combat with minimal roleplay and we played a you know four and a half hour session, which is now on YouTube. Um, and we're going to be doing it again next week. And in that four and a half hours of gameplay, almost no mention has been made of the new characters. You know, um, I think maybe their call signs and the mechs they're piling have been mentioned, but we don't know anything more about them than that. 
No descriptions. No personality. But they're going to come up. They, they're they? going to come up. Exactly right. But it was just funny that, I, and, and people mentioned it. it's like you know, I, I love the session. Great session. You know, really well done, guys. Who are these new characters? <laughs> want to know more about them so yeah. and one of them was like they're almost about to die as well so we might never get to know about that character <laughs> oh it reminds me of the I can't remember what the name of the show was but there was, there was a TV show it was pretty dreadful Sliders oh yeah do you remember Sliders, sliders when, yes. when they changed actors the, the, the key starring actor they changed who the actor was going to be so they decided they worked out this ridiculous way of getting rid of the character but of course they still had to get rid of him so they had this scene at the start of the first episode of that season where he's running with his back turned towards the camera waving with it it's obviously not him like painfully obvious and it's just that sort of, you know, the role of so and so will now be played by so and so. Okay, it's like when they when they wrote Poochie out of uh, out of The Simpsons. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> just always, I always think of that when I when, when characters appear for a new session yeah. and they get killed in their first session. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, all right then. I think we've covered off this topic. Let's go into closing out the show. All astropaths to the choir chamber. Message incoming. All right. So at this point in the show, we normally talk about any feedback we've received, any any questions or comments. Uh, I think it's been pretty quiet. We've been a bit slow on episodes right now. We're pretty much doing one a month at the moment. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was Christmas time as well and New Year's, all that sort of stuff. You know, so uh, it was pretty busy. But uh, once again, I hope you still enjoy the show. Uh, Mike, what do you think we should do for episode one hundred three? Anything particular come to mind? I mean, thinking about what's in Wrath and Glory, we've got we could talk about chaos. You know, so one of the chaos archetypes and focus on things like corruption and uh, that sort of stuff. Yeah. We can talk about the Elder, you know. Uh... I, I think we could focus on chaos a little bit. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay, so... Well, I guess... Let's talk about the Heretic and the Omnissiah and the difference between the two. Okay. No, Sounds right. good. So, 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 so the, the Heretic, we'll talk about the corruption system. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll... Should we talk about... Doing evil Wrath and Glory campaigns as well, maybe. As a, yeah, we can talk about that a little bit. That sounds yeah, good. So, so you, get, you get to listen to the show being produced as as it's being recorded. Yes. Is that, so I, I, re- I just realised my point when I was, ah, have updated, have updated my, 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 my show, my show note, coding notes here. Still yes. refers to the last the last night episode. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> once again, peeling back the curtain there. Uh, hope you enjoyed the show today. It's uh, good to be back for a new year. Looking forward to doing some more shows this year. I'm really looking forward to. The, the books we know are coming out for Wrath and Glory down the track, including Imperium Nihilus. Yep. Um, yeah, lots of fun stuff there. And also looking forward to telling you more about our own Wrath and Glory campaign, provided Mike, we keep on Mike's back about running it as well. It's always sounding yep, yep. <laughs> worse than pod fade is game fade. Yeah. But, uh, you yeah, know, we're looking forward to that. And uh, hopefully you'll join us throughout the year as we talk about it. And uh, we look forward to catching you next time. Mike, thanks very much. Thank you very much. And we'll see you again soon. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Ulysses North America. One forty thousand Wrath and Glory, Dark Heresy, Road Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Ulysses North America is a trademark of Ulysses Media and Spiel Distribution GmbH. All other materials are trademarks of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grim Dark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music was composed by Jens Kilsoffer and is used under license.